Well, today's going to be a little bit different. And uh, the reason is, kind of alluded to it already a little bit, but uh, that's because we're kind of a cross, at, at, at a crossroads here at Crossway. The past few weeks we've, uh, we've examined ourselves and um, we've determined that, that we're sick, right? And we know that, uh, what, acknowledging that you have a problem is the first step, right? But we can't stop there. That we can't stop there. You know, uh, it's not God's will that we be sick. It's not God's will that, that Crossway die. It's God's will that we be healthy, vibrant, and reproductive. So it's not just enough for us to realize that we have a problem. We've got to also figure out where to go from this point to get where God wants us to be. And uh, that can be a little bit complicated. That can be a little tricky. And uh, Buffy and I, he already talked about it, but uh, Buffy and I went uh, with Clay Gilbreth and had lunch with a revitalization expert on Thursday. And uh, we're going to share out and lay some of those things out that we, uh, that we learned with our discussions with this guy and all of the material that he gave us. We're going to lay a lot of that out uh, next week after service in our, in our meeting next week. But one thing that I'll say now is that um, what's coming into the lives of us here at Crossway is not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to get fixed quick. It's not one of those things that you can decide to do one day and, uh, and then two weeks later it's, it's fixed. It's not going to happen. That's not the way it works. It's going to take a commitment from all of us. From each one of us, it's going to take a commitment. Because the truth of the matter is, all of us has something to do with the state crossways in today. All of us share the blame. Every one of us. And so it's going to take all of us to fix it as well. But before we can even get to that place of talking about what we can do to fix it, I think we need to dig deeper I, because really and truly, I don't think we even fully understand what our issues are. We don't. We don't fully understand what our issues truly are. You can see what we've done thus far is we've examined the body of the church and determined that the, as a body we're sick. But what makes up a body is individual members, right? And the body, the whole entire body of Crossway wouldn't be sick if there wasn't something at a deeper level going on. And my belief is that we have some personal sickness within our individual selves. And uh, as a whole, we need to identify if we're healthy or if we're sick individually. We need to identify where we're at. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to examine ourselves this morning, and we're going to look at the things that, that make up a healthy Christian. And we're going to compare it right up against our very own lives. We're going to look at a healthy Christian and we're going to see what our lives look like. And none of us are excluded. I'm not excluded from this. Buffy's not excluded from it. No one person is excluded. We're all going to take this test this morning. We've got a couple of tests we're going to take. And I know you didn't come to church to take a test, but we're going to take a couple of them today. Because if this church is going to get well, it's only going to do that if the individual, individual pieces of the body are healthy and well. Amen. So we're going to take a couple of tests this morning. If you will, go ahead and turn to... Uh, First John, the book of First John, First John chapter five right now. We're going to be all through the book this morning, but we'll start out in chapter five. First John chapter five, verse 13. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So in other words, John's saying that he wrote these things that he did in this book, in 1 John, the five chapters of 1 John, John's saying that he wrote these things so that you can know you're saved. He wrote these things 
that not only so that you can have assurance of your salvation, but also so that you can take a spiritual physical and see where you are in your walk. And that's what we're going to do this morning. He gives us 10 proofs throughout this whole book that we can look at and line up right against our lives to determine if we're, number one, if we're a believer to begin with, but number two, determine how healthy we are as believers. All right, so that's what we're going to do. You're not going to answer these questions or take this test on paper. You're not going to turn them in. I'm not going to grade them because I'm not your judge. Buffy's not going to grade them. This is between you and God. All right, between you and God. So you're going to do what the Bible says we should do, and that's examine yourself. We should examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So we're going to do that this morning, all right? Are you cold, are you lukewarm, or are you on fire? And that's what we're going to look at, all right? So flip back to chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1. And we'll go through these proofs, these 10 proofs, pretty quick. Proof number 1 comes from verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, 1 John 1, 7. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. So if you're a Christian... You like hanging out with other Christians. That's what it's saying. If you're a Christian, you like being around other Christians. That's it. You just like to. It's not that you don't have non-Christian friends. You can have those. You can have un, you know unbelievers as friends because you, I know all of us have unbelievers in our family. We work with them. We live with maybe some of them. So it's it's right to love unbelievers and non-Christians. We should. Uh, but those people that are saved, there's something special about them, and we just want to be around other saved people. Right. There's a desire to be around other believers, especially those believers in your very own church body. And if there's not a desire to be around those in the body of your church, something's wrong. Something's wrong in yourself. If you don't have a desire to be around the other people in this room, something's wrong. All right. Proof number two comes from the very next verse, verse eight. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. All right, now I want you to understand this. This is not just a simple acknowledgement saying, oh yeah, of course I sin. We all sin. I'm a sinner. I do some things wrong. That's not what this is saying. It's more than that. This right here, this, this verse says, I recognize to my core that I just don't have a God-shaped hole in my heart. I have a filthy, wretched, despicable heart. And if anybody knew what was going on inside of me, I would be ashamed. That's what this means. That's the depth of, a depth of knowing who you are before a holy God. All right, our next proof. I flip over to chapter 2, 1 John 2, verse 3. And how can we be sure that we belong to Him? By obeying His commandments. If someone says, I belong to God, but doesn't obey His commandments, that person is a liar and, is, and does not live in the truth. So you know the Ten Commandments? Do you strive to keep the Ten Commandments? All right, look, look down at verse um, 1 John 2.15. Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you. For when you love the world, you show that you do not have a love of the Father in you. If you love the world, that's a tough one. Because let's be honest, here in America, we, we, we love the world. We love the, the things that the world offers us. Now, if you love the world, that doesn't mean you live in a tent in the middle of a field with, with, with one change of clothes and, and uh, you, you just stay out there in the wilderness. That's not a love for the world. That's, that's not what this means. What John is speaking of in this verse is the, is the world system, right? The stuff the world has to offer us. If we love those things, if we cherish those things, then look at here, we're at odds with God. 
If you cherish the things the world has to offer you, you are at odds with God. All right, look at verse 23. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who confesses the Son has the Father also. So do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? That, that one can confuse you a little bit because it seems like, oh yeah, I know Jesus. Of course I know who Jesus is. But I can't tell you how many people I've run across in the last five or six years to ask that question. Do you know Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? And they say, yeah, yeah, he's the son of God. Yeah, but is he God? Maybe the son of God, but is he God? And they'll say, no, he's the son of God. Well, listen, if you don't believe that Jesus is God himself in the flesh, if you don't understand that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, then the text says you don't have the father. You have to understand who Jesus is. We got to know who the right Jesus is. And for a point of reference, second John, the book of second John tells us all about that. It is loaded with that truth. But we have to have a good theology of who Jesus is. If you don't have a good theology of who Jesus is, then you're not believing in the right God. You might as well believe in a carved idol. You've got to have a good theology of Jesus. All right, here's our next proof. Turn over to chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Yes, dear friends, we are already God's children, and we can't even imagine what we will be like when Christ returns. So if you're a believer, if you're a healthy believer especially, you can't wait to see God. Right. You can't wait. It's as simple as that. Not because we're tired or we just want to go home or we just want to leave this world and die. But but it's just I can't wait until I can't wait till he touches down on, on, on Mount Zion. I can't wait to see my savior face to face. Right. You can't wait to see God. Hmm. Here's the next one. We're going to skip. We're going to skip one. We're going to go to the, the number the uh, proof number eight. Because this next one's pretty hard. We're going to skip over it. And I want to spend some time digging in. So we'll come back to it. Uh, but let's do proof eight. Uh, jump to 1 John 3.14. If we love our children, or if we, if we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to eternal life. So not only do you like to fellowship with Christians, but you love them. Not only do you want to fellowship with your bro fellow brothers and sisters, but you love them. We just plain love them. And it shows. People know it. People can see it. They know it. It's a visible love. It's a very visible love. All right, flip over to chapter 4. Told you we're going to go through these quick. Chapter 4, verse 6. But we belong to God. That is why those who know God listen to us. So Christians, healthy Christians, love preaching. They love teaching. They love hearing and reading the word of God. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. So the more we grow in our love for God's word, the more it's going to dominate our thinking and dominate every area of our life. And that's, that's when our minds are going to get renewed. All right, that's when our minds will be truly renewed. All right, skip down to verse 15. First John 4, 15. All who proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. So when is the last... And you've heard us ask this question. We ask this question all the time. But uh, when is the last time you purposely 
intentionally proclaim Jesus to somebody else? When is the last time you have shared your faith with somebody else? Because people aren't walking up to you and asking you, right? They, they might see that something is different about you, but they're not coming up and asking you. Why? I, they might you, I don't know, but I've never once had that happen to me. Have you? Have you ever once had somebody come up? Because I haven't. I've never had anybody walk up and say, excuse me, you just seem special. Why are you so special? You know, what's different about you? I've never had anybody do that. And maybe I need to work on something. I don't know, but it just don't happen to me. The Barter Group, um, their latest research says that, listen to this, this is going to floor you. And I know it is because it did me. 2% of Christians in America actually intentionally share their faith. 2% of Christians actually intentionally share their faith. Listen to what I'm saying. If we fail to proclaim Jesus as being the son of God, we don't live in God. Just don't happen. Brace yourself for what I'm about to say, because this one will slap you upside the face. It slapped me. It stung me a little bit. Charles Spurgeon said this. If you don't have a passion to see lost souls saved, you're not saved yourself. You can be sure of that. If you don't have a passion to see lost souls saved, you're not saved yourself. Charles Spurgeon said that. When I heard him say, when, when I first read that, it, it became unmistakably clear to me. We don't have a choice. If we're believers, if we're healthy Christians, if we're believers, we don't have a choice. How can we not share the news? How can we just sit on it? We've got the words to life. So how can I not share it? And Buffy said this a million times, uh, but it's, it, it just makes sense. How It's like the doc, a doctor having a cure to cancer, but he's more interested in his own studying and his own growth than actually seeing cancer patients healed. We've got the words to life. We know people are going to die, spiritually die. We know that's going to happen. And if we're just walking past them in Walmart and not sharing with them, are you a healthy believer? I'd say not. I'd say not. We have the words to life. We've got to share them. All right, here's the last one. It's remember, skipped over number seven. Let's go back. First John three. First John chapter three, verse eight. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now that's as clear as it can be stated. But we need to know, we need to know this because this, there's some Greek involved here. The text doesn't mean that Christians never sin. It means that if you keep on sinning, if you have a lifestyle of sin. Now understand what we're about, what I'm about to say. The Christian walk is not about perfection. I want you to write that down. The Christian walk is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. So if you're not moving in a direction of holiness, you're not in the faith. Right. If you're not growing spiritually, if you're not moving closer to God and your love and your knowledge of him, then you don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. And, and that's something that's just not optional for a believer. It's definitely not optional for a healthy believer. So how holy should you be? That's that's a, that's a good question. How holy should we be? I don't know. Do you know the answer to that question? Because I don't. I mean, I don't know if we have to master two of these ten proofs or all ten of them to be as holy as God intends for us to be. I don't know. But what I do know, what I, what, I, what I can tell you, is that if I'm a truly healthy Christian, then I should be holier today than I was yesterday. 
I should be holier this year than I was last year. That's it. Just just more holy. Moving in that direction. Never reaching perfection until God redeems us, but moving. So are you holier today than you were last year? If you don't know, ask your family. They'll tell you. Mine certainly will. Mine will certainly tell you. They'll tell you. It's brutal. They know. They live with you. They see you every single day. They see you when the world doesn't see you. So are you, are you holier today than you were yesterday? Ask your family. They'll let you know. So... That's the, that's the 10 question test. The first one. So how'd you do? Lukewarm, hot, cold? Don't share with anybody. Don't, you know, it's between you and God, but, but how did you do? Hot, cold, or lukewarm? So here's a question. There's another question I want us to consider for the rest of the morning. If you're not on fire for God, which I would venture to say that the majority of us in this room are not, if you're not on fire for God, how do you get to be on fire for God. How do you get better on your score on that 10 question test? How do you become one of those Christians that desires the word, that loves the brethren, that can't wait to see the Lord, that loves the preaching and teaching of his word, that goes out and proclaims their faith wherever they go, that has a good theology and doctrine of Jesus, that knows that you're a sinner, but you're grateful for God. How do you get on fire like that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to share it with you. I think God's given us some biblical examples, and so if we can figure these out, if we can figure these things out, then I'd say every one of us can walk out of this, this place today being on fire for God. Not lukewarm, not, not where we'll be spewed out of the mouth of our Savior on Judgment Day, but on fire. If we can understand God's way of getting on fire. All right? You ready? Here it is. Three guys in the Bible. Three examples. James, Jude, and Joseph of Arimathea. James, Jude, and Joseph of Arimathea. Now, James and Jude, they were brothers of Jesus. They were half-brothers of Jesus. And John 7 says they didn't believe in Jesus. Now, imagine that. They didn't believe. They were living with God, and they didn't even believe in Him. Living in the same place with Him, growing up with Him, and didn't believe in Him because their hearts were hard toward Him. But something happened along the way. Because these two guys, they wrote two books in the Bible, and they both began the same way, both of them. James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So they went from bitter to bondservant. Well, how'd that happen? How did that happen? What changed? Something changed. How did they go from bitter and unbelieving to a bondservant of Christ and believing in Jesus? If we can figure out what changed them, then I promise you it'll change us too. Sure will. And then the third guy in the Bible, he was kind of the same way, Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible says he was a secret believer. Any secret believers in here? You ain't going to raise your hand. I know you're not. It's okay. You're in church. You don't have to raise your hand. This is the place where you don't have to be a secret believer. But I'm, I guarantee you there's some of you here that will admit, maybe not admit out loud here, but, but can admit to yourself that, yeah, I'm a Christian, but if I bring it up at work, I can lose my friends. If I bring it up at work, I might not get that promotion that I've been working towards if I talk too much about Jesus. And look, that's not being cautious. That's being a secret believer. And Joseph of Arimathea, he was a religious leader, and he had all the prestige that came with being a leader in that day, but he was a secret believer. And then something happened, something changed, because he jumped straight out of the closet of Christianity. And he, he went to Pontius Pilate, and he said, I want to take down the body of the Son of God. Tell you something, it's something small in, in Scripture that, that we don't notice. But let me tell you, 
That's bold. That was bold of him. Being a secret believer before and being in the position and the place that he was in for him to come and say, I want to take down the body of the Son of God. There wasn't any going back for him at that point. That was it. He was bold. He came out of the closet of Christianity right then. So why do you think he did that? Why did he do that? Why did that happen? What happened in his life? Well, listen, we got to learn it. And I'm telling you, when we figure this out, it's going to change us. It'll make you radically different when we figure this out. You ready for the answer? What changed James and Jude and Joseph of Arimathea? What, what changed these three guys? If we realize it, it's going to change us too. If we can figure it out and, and, and allow it to change our lives, it will change our lives too and it will make us radically different. This is going to blow your mind because you already have the answer. You already know the answer. But you may have never realized the power in the answer. It's the cross. It's that simple. It's the cross that changed them. It's the cross. See, they were good Jews. James and Jude, they grew up in they grew up in the house of Mary. They were good Jews. They they knew the scripture, and Joseph of Arimathea was a was a religious leader. He knew the scriptures and they got the cross. They did it. It changed them. It changed their lives. So if you're not solid right here, right now in your walk, it's because you don't get the cross yet. It's because you don't get the cross. Turn to Isaiah 53. I'm going to read it, but I want you to read along with me and follow along. So everybody turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Y'all realize this was written 700 years before Jesus came to earth. 700 years before Jesus walked this earth. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their, hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the message of the cross right there. And listen, y'all, we got to get it. We have got to understand this. We've got to get it. We've got to master it. Something else we have to realize is, is that there are two lessons we can learn from the cross. Two lessons. Most of us know one lesson, but there are two lessons at the cross. The first lesson is this. Lesson number one is this, is, is God hates sin. Right? And I know you've all heard this. I know, and, and, and I, hope, I pray that you know that lesson. God hates sin. We don't hear a lot about it a lot these days, though. It offends people. It can make people not like you. But the truth of the matter is... The God created hell. He created a place called hell for people who break his law. And I have conversations with people almost on a weekly basis, not that often, but, but on, a, on a regular basis that don't believe in hell. They'll say they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that God sends anybody to hell. They don't believe in hell. And if you're one of them, I don't know everybody here. I don't know all your deep spiritual beliefs. I hope that I do, but if you don't believe in hell, I, I, I would argue and I would plead with you to know that you're, you, for you yourself to know that you're right. 
make sure you know you're right if you don't believe in hell. Because I'm telling you, it's a real place. It's a real place. So make sure you know you're right. God created this place for lawbreakers. And it's, Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. He descri- and it's everything he described it to be. He described it as a lake of fire with weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said it's a place where the worm never dies. So it exists, and, and, and I would venture to say most people are going there. Most people are going there because God hates sin, and he won't have it in his presence. He won't, he won't tolerate it. He won't put up with it. So let me ask you this. Are, are there things that God can't do? Are there th- is there anything that God can't do? Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Are, are there things that are impossible for God to do? You better believe there's things that's impossible for God to do. There are definitely things God can't do. And one of those is God can't have sin in his presence. He cannot have sin in his presence. He's so good and so pure and so holy that he can't have sin around it. It's impossible for him to do it. You want to see an example in the Bible? Here's some scriptural example for you. Think about the high priest. Think about the high priest. Once a year on the day of atonement, the high priest would go where? To the Holy of Holies. That's right. He would go in there and that's where God's presence would be. And that's where the high priest would atone for the sins of the people. Right. You know what they did to the high priest, though, before he went in? They tied a rope around his leg. What else did they do? They put bells on his robe. He had bells on his robe and he had a rope tied around his leg, around his ankle. And so he would purify himself before he went into the Holy of Holies. All right. But if he had not purified himself correctly, you know what God would do? Strike him dead. That's right. He would strike him dead because God cannot have sin in his presence. So the bells, what would happen is they would be listening. As he was in there, they would be listening. As long as they heard the bells jingling and ringling and dingling, then they knew he was all right. They knew he was moving around. But if they heard the bells stop, then they'd jerk on that rope and jerk him out of there because they weren't going to go in there after him and get him because they knew they weren't atoned. They, they knew they weren't purified. And if the, if the high priest hadn't purified himself correctly, those people surely weren't going in after him. So they would jerk him out. And that happened. God, God would strike him dead because God's a consuming fire and he hates sin. He can't have sin in his presence at all. And so some people would say, ah, that's the Old Testament God. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not the New Testament God. That's the Old Testament God. Well, ask Ananias and Sapphira. Ask him about it. God struck them dead for lying, didn't he? He hadn't changed from the Old to the New Testament. He's the same God. He hates sin. And on the day of judgment, he's going to pour out his anger and he's going to pour out his wrath on everybody who refuses to repent. And everybody who practices evil and lives for themselves. So I'm here to tell you right now, and this is the truth, 31 years of my life, I lived and nobody ever shared that fact with me. Nobody ever told me God hates sin. They told me about Jesus and the good news, but I never heard the bad news. I never heard that God hated sin. And so I never really understood that lesson of the cross. Never really understood it. And look, it's good news. It's very good news, like I said. But only when we understand the depth of our sin that that, that the second lesson of the cross becomes so amazing to us. Because, see, despite what we are or what we've done, God God died to to save us anyway. If you don't think the cross is glorious, then you've got some even deeper examination to do than what we're doing here this morning.
You got to look at yourself and you got to see yourself and not the way that you compare yourself to other people who sin differently, the other people who sin differently than you, because that's what we have a tendency to do. When we look at ourselves as Christians, we'll compare ourselves to other Christians who sin differently than us and that we can then we line our lives up next to theirs and say, well, I'm a better Christian than they are. Well, we can't compare ourselves to other people. We have to compare ourselves to the word. We have to compare ourselves to God. That's what we have to do. So we have to know we got to look at God's standard and we have to see how much sin we actually possess. All right. So that's what we're going to do. Here's our next test. We're going to take another 10 point test. We're going to look and see how much sin we actually possess. So where is God in your life? Where is God in your life? It's a question that will really dig into you. Is Jesus precious to you? There's another one. Where's God in your life? Is Jesus precious to you? Is Jesus precious and dear to you? Is he really the focal point of your affections? How many days have you woken up just like I used to and never thanked God? How many days have you woken up and you've uh, never thanked God for what he's done for you? Not just in salvation, but but even in common grace. How many how many times have you never bowed your head to thank him for the food that he's provided? Never getting given him the honor that he's due. Never thanking him for your for your wife, your spouse, and your and your children. So usually I wasn't thanking God. I was the one that that was having a terrible thought life. Never thanking God. What about making a graven image? It's not just for the Hindus. I know we think that's Hinduism, but listen, you know, they, you know the Hindus, they make those little graven images and they put them up on the fireplace, right? And those are the gods that they worship. But we can do it too. That's not what I'm talking about. You and I can make graven images and here's what we do. We say, well, oh, Jimmy was a little bit crazy this week. That guy's nuts, man. I, I don't know what he was talking about, but my God's not wrath-filled. My God's not going to send anybody to hell. Jimmy went a little bit far, too far this week. You know what? If that's what you're thinking, if you, I, I can tell you you're 100% correct. If that's what you're thinking about what I just said about God and hating sin and God being full of wrath, if you believe that, that, that your God is not like that, you're 100% right because your God's not going to do all those things because your God doesn't exist. It's a figment of your imagination. I want you to understand the God of the Bible is wrath-filled. The God of the Bible that we worship is wrath-filled and he's angry at sin every single day. And so I hope you all understand that fact, that God will crush sinners on the day of judgment. He will crush them because we didn't put him first. See, we did all the stuff, we did, we did all the things that we wanted to do, all the things that, that, we, that made us happy, the things that we love out of life, the things that we sought after, but we didn't put God first. We never stop and say, God, thank you for doing this. Thank you. Every breath we take, we should thank God for life. Every breath we take, we should stop and thank him for it. But what we do is we, we love the gifts, but we never thank the giver. We love the gifts, but never even take time to thank the giver. What about taking his name in vain? Cussing and swearing? Absolutely. What about calling yourself a Christian then acting like somebody who's not a Christian? And the world go, yeah, yeah, yeah. If that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't want any part of it. We do it every day. Listen to me. 
His name is holy. Right. His name is holy. And so this is what nobody ever told me in 31 years that I lived. I was on a crash course with hell. I was going to bust the doors of hell wide open and nobody ever stopped and shook me and said, he's holy. God is holy. Don't you get it? God's just not up there going, whatever, let him do whatever. He's holy. He's holy. And he will be glorified. One way or another, he will be glorified. God will get the glory when, when we're saved and we go to heaven and spend eternity with him. Or if we die apart from him and spend eternity in hell, guess what? God's glorified both ways. He will give his glory out of us. What about all liars having their part in the lake of fire? Right. Can you do something else with that verse? Because I can't. It's pretty straightforward, right? I can't figure anything else out to do with it. God's keeping tabs. He is that every secret uh, sin done in darkness is known to God. He knows everything and he's storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Because why? We've been rebels, right? We've rebelled against God. We've been rebels. And, and this here is his story that we're living. We think we're living our lives and, and make it a legacy for ourselves, but we're really living his story. And we don't understand that this is his story. It's his plan for his glory. And what we've been doing, we've been chasing all of the stuff. And we've been, we've been instead of looking up towards him, we look inward and we do it all ourselves because we think this is about us. It's not about us. It's not about our happiness. It's not about it's not about gaining all that we can in this life. It's about giving as much glory to God as we possibly can, because that's what he requires. It's about his glory. Right. Amen. But what we do is or what we don't do is desire his word. We don't desire his word. We don't we don't keep the Sabbath the way we should. We've dishonored our parents. All you young people in here, listen, when, when your parents have to ask you two or three or four times to do something, you're sinning against God. My kids especially listen to me. When I have to ask you two or three or four times to do something, you're sinning against God. It's the truth of the matter. Do it when you're told. Look, it's a sin against God and he knows it and he's keeping tabs. And when you're 70 years old, he's not going to forget it. He won't forget the sins of your youth. And, and adults, look, we do it too. We do it too. You know, murder, we don't. I, I, I never murdered anybody. I never killed anybody. You ever been angry with somebody? You've committed murder in your hearts. What God says, that's what Jesus said. And these laws that God gave us, He gave them to us for a reason, didn't He? They were given, they weren't given so people could say, yeah, yeah, I can keep it. I can, I can keep those laws and I can earn God's favor. That's what every other world religion's about. Every other world religion says, let's keep, God, let's, let's keep God's favor so we can earn our way to heaven. But these laws that God gave us weren't, weren't given for us to earn our way to heaven. You know why the law was given? Can anybody tell me why the law was given? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. These laws were given so that we'd say, God, we can't do these things. We can't do it. But see, the Jews missed it. They missed it. They didn't get it. They responded to the laws. What'd they say? What'd they do? They, they got together and they wrote more rules and they more wrote more laws and uh, they missed it. So Jesus comes along and, and if you remember in the Beatitudes, he takes the law and he turns the heat up on it. He turns up the focus and he turns up the spotlight and he's instead of saying thou shall not murder, he said, you've heard it said thou shall not murder. And I say you call your brother a fool and you're in danger of judgment. 
And they should have said, I do that all the time. I do that all the time. That's what they should have said. And then Jesus says, well, you've heard it said of old that thou shall not commit adultery. I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So it should be a burden that crushes every one of us. Every one of us, we should be crushed by The Jews missed it. And, and I, I hope that we don't miss that here this morning. This is not just about being a Christian. This is about being a healthy Christian, a healthy believer. And when we look at the Beatitudes here, it shows us just how much we failed. Jesus says, be perfect even as your father is perfect. And look, that should crush every one of us. Lying and taking things that don't belong to us and coveting and desiring things, it should all bury us. And we should, we should take this 10-point test and we should cry out to God because we failed miserably. Every one of us have failed miserably. And every one of us, God has the right to send every one of us to hell. And that would be just. Would it not? God would be just in sending every single one of us to an eternity in hell. And he should do it to me first. Because it's only what's fair. It's only what's fair. I run into people all the time. They say, well, you know, hell's not that bad like they've been. Well, hell's not that bad. Let me tell you something. It's bad and it's worse. It's worse because God hates sin. He hates it. And, and if that were the end of it, if that were the end of it, honestly, we, we, if that was the end of it, if, if we could just live our lives and be done, then we should all just go live it up. Right. If at the end of our lives we just cease to exist, then that's what we should do. We should all just live our best life now. That's what the devil wants you to do. He wants you to enjoy the finest things in life. He wants you to. He wants you to go and live and, and enjoy this world. And God is trying to show us that it's not all about this world. There's a world after this world, and that's the world that matters because that's the world that lasts for eternity. This one is temporary. If we don't understand lesson one of the cross, then we're never going to appreciate lesson two. If your Christian walk is a little flimsy, if you're sick and not a healthy Christian, it's because you're not spending enough time focusing on lesson one. And I would say dwell in the fact that, that you've lived your life for yourself. You've lived your life for yourself and let that truth crush you. And then when you can when you can hardly believe, breathe, look at the cross. Consider the second lesson of the cross. Because what you should do is you should turn and look at the Savior dying on the cross. Turn and look at Jesus dying on the cross because God loved this filthy, foul, sinful, and rebellious world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's just not good news. That's stunning news. That's shocking news. Because... Look, if you think about it, we've talked about this a lot recently, being Easter. We've talked about, I know I did the, a few weeks ago when I preached and talked about Jesus' walk to the cross. Most men didn't make it to the cross. Most men that they crucified back then didn't even make it. Uh, they, they would whip him with a cat of nine tails, you know, with the leather and the bone and, and, uh, and with the nails in it. And it would tear through their skin, tear through their muscles. And a lot of times their organs would fall right out of their back. And they wouldn't even make it to the cross. But you know what? Jesus knows, knew then and knows today, knew your thought life. He knew all of your sins, all your failures. And you know what he said? He said, I'll do it anyway. I'll do it because I love them. That's an amazing love. Amen. That my God would die for me. You know, you could understand it if maybe we were all good. 
But none of us are good. We're not good at all. We're all bad. And guess what? He died for us anyway. None of us have any good in us. And he still died for us. When he died on the cross, so he was hanging there, his back was all torn up and he was on that wood and he couldn't breathe because he was he was slinking down on the cross as the, with those nails driving, dri- driven through his flesh. And he would um, God's son, God, God gave up his son for us. Jesus couldn't, you know, he, he, he hung on the cross for, for hours fighting for his life. God gave up his son. Would you give up your son for anybody? I got three of them. Sometimes I want to, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't give up my, my kids for anybody. But God gave up his son for us. And the Bible says that he, is, he was pleased to bruise his only son. Why? Because he hates sin. He hates sin, but he loves us. But he hates sin. So it pleased God to pour out his wrath as a payment for us that that we could all respond one day and say, God, thank you. God, save me. So that the entire world for all eternity could look at him and say, what an amazing God we serve. But the first thing you got to do is be completely done with yourself. You have to be completely done with yourself. Are you done with yourself or is the center of your life you? Is the center of all of your life you? Does that make sense? You've got to be done with yourself. So if you're a believer, if you, if you, where, where, where is your life right now? If you're a believer, if what we've looked at and seen this morning, these two tests, where is your life? Are you cold? Are you hot? Are you lukewarm? Here's one last test you can use. I'll give you one last one. You can examine where you are. Do you talk about your life and your walk uh, and your church life? Do you talk about them as separate things? Do you have a family and a church family? I'm going to be honest with you. If you do, then you're putting God in a box. You're putting God and the things of God in a box that you only take out when you're ready to. You say, oh, that's just Christian talk. I live my life with God at the center. But I say things like church family and and church life because that's how Christians talk. Change your vocabulary. Stop talking like that. If you're a healthy believer, you only have one family. You only have one life, and that's God at the center of your life. Be done with yourself. Be done with yourself. Submit to God. Submit everything about your life to God. So how do you get there? Well, it's simple, but yet, it, but yet it's hard. So consider the test we've taken. And, and, and right now in the privacy of your heart, get alone with God. You know if you're saved or not. You know if you're a believer or not. You know. Do the heavy lifting. Examine your life. You know what you've done in your life. You know the thoughts, the deeds, the actions, the lack of praise, the lack of thanksgiving. Uh, dwell on it. Let it crush you. Let it bury you. And when you think that you can't stand any more of it uh, because of your fin- filthy sinfulness, look at the cross. Take a look at the cross and look at your God hanging there. And he hung there to forgive your sin. And it should break your heart. It should break you. It should break your heart to the point where you cry out to him. 
You should say, God, I'm sorry. I didn't know. You should say, God, I didn't know how much you hated sin. I didn't know how much you loved me. Would you have me? Would you forgive me? Would you save me? And he's good and he's faithful and he's just. Because he will. And that's the heart that God desires. That's the place that we have to be at. If Crossway is going to ever turn around and make a turnaround, then all of our hearts have to be here. We have to have a childlike faith, not a critical faith. We have to have a childlike faith. We have to... Uh, we can't be in control of our lives. He doesn't want someone that's in control of our own lives. He wants that little baby faith that, lo that looks up to him and says, God, you're big. You part seas. You put men in wells. You created the earth in six days. You died on the cross. God, you're huge. I love you. Save me. That's what he's looking for. That's the church body that he's going to work with. That's the church body he's going to revive and restore and renew. So we have to look in ourselves to see if we're individually sick, if these things that we talked about today, if we're not mastering these things, then we're sick. If we're not striving towards these things, then we're sick. And as a body, we cannot be healthy collectively if a body, if we're individually sick. It's not going to happen. So we have to be healed. God has to heal us first before we can heal as a body before we can revitalize Crossway Baptist Church, the individual members of Crossway Baptist Church has to be first healed. And God's good. He, he'll, he, he will. Look, He'll save you. You'll know it and you'll be on fire for Him. And I'm telling you, once God saves you, renews you, restores you, and once you're on fire, you'll never be snatched from His hand. He'll seal you with the Holy Spirit because that's the sign and seal of his covenant. And he'll save you until the day of redemption. And we'll stand before him and you'll inherit eternal life. Not because you're a good person, because you're not, right? When nobody's a good person, but because you're a bad person who's been forgiven by a good God. He died to prove his love for you. So today, if you're not saved, if you're not a believer, if you don't match and measure up to the things that we're talk, we've talked about today, I'd say please come to him. Come to him. Get it taken care of today. He's a good God. But if you realize that you're lukewarm or you're, or you're cold and you are saved, I, I, I beg you, if you are a believer but you're lukewarm or you're cold, we're not going to heal until we get on our face before God and beg Him to restore and revive our love for Him. Every person in this church come to this altar this morning. Fall on your face before Him and ask Him and cry out to Him to revive us. Ask Him to renew your love for Him, to refocus your thoughts back to Him, because that's the only way we'll ever be revitalized. If all of our individual pieces come and cry out to God to restore and revive our individual selves. So I'm going to ask you now to come to the altar this morning. Come to the altar. I'll pray. If Ms. Brenda, you want to come and play, I'll pray. And then as, 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 as Ms. Brenda plays, come to the altar and cry out to God. Believer or not, come to the altar. If you're not a believer, let's have that conversation. Come to him this morning. But if you are, we've got a long way to go in this journey to revitalize this church. And we're not going to do it if we don't get on our knees and beg him to do it. Because we can't do it. Buffy can't do it. Jimmy can't do it. Marty and Coach can't do it. We can't do it. God has to do it. We've got to fall on our face and ask him to do it.